Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. We are shifting gears a little bit from the blockbusters we've done the last couple weeks as we celebrate films that came out in May in years past, and we are turning towards one of the most acclaimed films of all time, which premiered in May of 1958, and that is Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece, Vertigo, a movie that didn't do very well when it first opened, but would go on to become, in some circles, the most critically acclaimed movie of all time. We're going to break down the movie itself, some of the techniques behind making it, why it maybe wasn't appreciated as much when it was released as it is now, and so much more. As always, thank you so much for joining us for the show. If you are an audio listener, I would encourage you to check out the show both on my channel, youtube.com slash Movies, and also check out the Schmodown Entertainment Network. I am proudly a partner with them along with Skybound. You can find so much over on SEN, including the movie trivia Schmodown. We are right in the middle of the season. Things are heating up. We're getting into championship season. We're soon going to be into tournament season. A lot of great stuff going on over there. And if you're watching us on video, a great way to help this show grow is to also become an audio subscriber. You can find that link down in the description below. There's a lot going on with Vertigo. So many different things to talk about. A lot of times I'll go into the pre-production phase and then the production phase and post-production. But here, I just want to dive into the movie and we'll stop and highlight some of Hitchcock's collaborators, some of the filmmaking processes as we go. But I want to dive into Vertigo just from frame one to start breaking it down. And when you're watching Vertigo, the first thing that comes up is a notification that the film you're seeing is in VistaVision. And this was a question that came up when I did a Patreon Q&A a couple months ago about things like CinemaScope and VistaVision, what exactly they were, and what it means when you watch a movie with that that comes up. VistaVision was a technology that was developed by Paramount Pictures in 1954, and it was part of a larger movie industry move towards getting people back into theaters by promising bigger and better experiences on the big screen to combat the threat from television at home. The biggest change with VistaVision was not a change in exhibition necessarily, it was a change in how the film ran through the camera. VistaVision movies were filmed so that the film ran across the camera horizontally. Up until that point, it had run across vertically. What this did was to shoot more onto each frame of film, and it resulted in a deeper, more luscious picture. It was all about very vibrant colors and about a very deep and resonant image to get people to come in and get the kind of quality that they couldn't get on their tiny television black and white screens at home. VistaVision as a filmmaking format, as in shooting a film, purely in VistaVision was pretty short-lived. It died out within a decade, but it retained its usefulness for visual effects because, as I mentioned, when the camera goes across horizontally instead of vertically, you capture more on the image and a deeper, richer picture. It was a process that was used to do special effects shots to get more detail into the frame, and Star Wars actually pioneered using the technology for that purpose. It then became an industry standard to shoot practical elements, things that you needed to capture on film using the VistaVision process because you would get more information onto the film, which meant that your visual effects shots would look better. And while this has been phased out largely by digital technology as visual effects have improved, Christopher Nolan, for example, is a director that loves to still use this process and has used it as recently as Interstellar to capture practical elements on film in order to give a great look to the visual effects in his movies. 
Following the VistaVision announcement and the Paramount logo, we get a one-two punch from two of Alfred Hitchcock's most important collaborators, especially when you're looking at this phase in his career, and that is titles designer Saul Bass and composer Bernard Herrmann. Let's start with Saul Bass, who started out as a print ad designer, but then with director Otto Preminger, made the move into doing the opening title sequences for films in the 1950s. Before Saul Bass, these were largely perfunctory or contractually obligated. He made them a work of art. Vertigo was his first collaboration with Alfred Hitchcock. He would go on to do memorable title sequences with him for North by Northwest and Psycho, amongst dozens of other movies that he designed the titles for. And it was driven by one overriding philosophy, which is that for Saul Bass, the titles were part of the movie itself. I had felt for some time that the audience involvement with a film should really begin with the very first frame. Later in his career, Saul Bass, who would also start working with his wife, Elaine Bass, in title design, made a few opening sequences for director Martin Scorsese, who also shared Saul Bass's belief that the titles were a functional part of the movie, not just something to play while the audience comes in and finds their seats. It's part of the film. It's nothing you walk in on and, and, and talk during or just miss. No, this is the film is beginning. Saul Bass was also a prolific graphic designer and made some of the most recognizable corporate logos of all time, including the AT&T Globe, that's been in the news quite a bit lately, as well as the logo for United Airlines that they used for almost three decades, and the logo for the Girl Scouts of America. Along with Saul Bass's design featuring these rotating spirals that brought you already into the depths of the mind that Vertigo would soon take the audience, you also have an absolutely brilliant musical score from Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann's first movie as a composer was Citizen Kane. And you'd think that for most people, it's all downhill from there. And yet, he went on to assemble one of the best careers of any composer in Hollywood history. Herman took inspiration from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, and when you combine his score with Saul Bass's visuals, it starts the movie off on such a mysterious and haunting note. And I think that it also says a lot about the, the power of collaboration, because Hitchcock, of course, gets and deserves so much credit for the film Vertigo. But the opening titles themselves were not something that he, you know, really designed. He didn't do the title design. He didn't write the music. And yet it sets the stage so perfectly for his work as a director later on. Great directors are great on their own, but they also know how to find the best people and the best collaborators. And Vertigo is a product, yes, of Alfred Hitchcock's vision, but also the brilliant visions of so many other people that work together seamlessly with his own. Bernard Herrmann received one Academy Award in 1941 for a movie called The Devil and Daniel Webster. He actually beat out himself for his score for Citizen Kane. So his first year on the job, he wins an Oscar. He would go on to receive three more nominations, but never win another Academy Award. And on top of that, none of his scores with Alfred Hitchcock were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Score. Not Vertigo, not Psycho, not North by Northwest, nor was his score for Cape Fear or The Day the Earth Stood Still or so many other amazing pieces of music that he would compose over his career. Bernard Herrmann passed away in 1975, the night that he finished recording the score for his last film, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. And think about that. Think about having a career like that. You start your career working in the movies on Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, and in the three-plus decades that you're working as a film composer, movies go all the way to Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. And yet, despite the fact that movies change so much, Herman remained a master of his craft, 
across every single era. That is really, really impressive. Following the opening credits, we start with a police chase across the roofs of San Francisco, and we see the beautiful panorama of the city. San Francisco was a city that Alfred Hitchcock fell in love with when he attended a film premiere there, according to an interview with his daughter, Pat Hitchcock. He loved San Francisco. He felt it was a very glamorous city. He felt it was uh, rather like an American Paris. That's how he described it. He felt it was very cosmopolitan. The first time we see Jimmy Stewart's character, police officer John Scotty Ferguson, he loses his footing and dangles precariously from the gutter, looking down to what is going to be his certain demise, and we get the first glimpse of what is called, at that time, the vertigo effect. It's now called the dolly zoom effect, but it's a technique that Hitchcock had been trying to crack since the 1940s when he was working on Rebecca, and his inspiration for it was actually a drunken night uh, at an official event where he noticed that he was fixing his attention on one point and yet the world around that point seemed to be moving. He really loved that effect but could never quite figure out how to translate that cinematically until Vertigo. Hitchcock is often given the credit for inventing this technique but it was reportedly actually figured out by the second unit director of photography Erman Roberts, and he figured out that if you dollied, as in physically pushed or pulled the camera forward or backward while zooming the lens in or out in the opposite direction that you're physically moving the camera, you can get this, this illusion of a fixed focal point with the world warping and moving around it. It really is a striking effect. They use it a few times in this movie, and it would be used by several other directors going forward into the future, famously in Jaws, the shot on the beach when Alex Alex Kintner is killed and Chief Brody realizes that uh, his world has literally just turned upside down. And it's also been used in movies a little more subtly like in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings. Right before the ring wraiths show up for the first time, we have that shot of the road where we have a fixed focal point and yet the world seems to be warping around it. It's an incredibly effective technique and as with Hitchcock's collaboration with Bernard Herrmann and with Saul Bass, it's also due to his artistic vision combined with the ability of the artisans and craftsmen around him to figure out the vision that he wanted. Following his near-death experience and now afflicted by the titular condition, Vertigo, Scotty is off the job, but then he's summoned by his old friend, Gavin Ulster, who wants Scotty to follow his wife, Madeline. Ulster is afraid that Madeline is going to be afflicted by insanity, which runs in her family. Ulster is also worried that Madeline may be possessed by the spirit of her great-grandmother, which might be driving her mad, and that she disappears for hours on end. So he hires Scotty to follow her around and see exactly what she's doing so that she doesn't go crazy. I've got to know Scotty. Where she goes and what she does before I get involved with doctors. The entire story of Vertigo is pretty crazy when you look at it on its surface. It's all about sex and betrayal, ghosts, possible doppelgangers and twins. Do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead, can enter and take possession of a living being? No. And yet you relate to it largely because you have this character of Scotty Ferguson. He's a very sympathetic character, and he's also a character who shows, especially for a leading male character, a lot more weakness and emotion than you would expect for somebody of that era. And the casting of Jimmy Stewart, according to Pat Hitchcock, is another reason why the audience bought this movie and every movie that Jimmy Stewart was in, he was able to gain their sympathy. Jimmy personified for my father every man, so that when people went to see a picture, they could put themselves in Jimmy's place. 
For screenwriter Sam Taylor, the emotional vulnerability of Scotty was a key aspect of both the character and the movie, and this was something that he discussed with Alfred Hitchcock from a very early stage. In those first talks, we decided that the more emotion there was in the man, the stronger the picture would be. Scotty initially balks at Gavin Ulster's offer, but he decides to take him up on it after Gavin arranges for him to see his wife Madeline, and Scotty is instantly transfixed by her. And who can blame him, because Madeline is played by Kim Novak at her most transfixing. I think that Novak's performance as Madeline and later Judy in this film is one of the best, if not the best, performances by any leading actress in an Alfred Hitchcock film. Of course, it's very old news that Alfred Hitchcock was as obsessed by his leading women as many of his characters were, and Kim Novak was no different. Much like the character of Scotty would later do in this movie, Alfred Hitchcock meticulously tailored every single aspect of Kim Novak's appearance down to the color and type of wardrobe that she wore. Edith Head went back to Hitchcock and said, you know, this actress does not want to wear gray. She would be very happy to wear any other color. And he said, I don't mind what color she wears as long as it's gray. Novak, who was a replacement for Hitchcock's first choice of Vera Miles, quickly noticed the parallels between the director of the film she was in and the characters of the film that she was playing against. If, if the hair was off in any way, he was calling the hairdress over constantly, fix that. In the back, the bun is twisted wrong. He was uh, obsessed with it, I would say. Obsessed with the look. It was as if he was Jimmy Stewart being making sure that she was dressed exactly the way Madeline was. He was playing the part of Jimmy Stewart. Following Scotty's first sighting of Madeline, we then get a very unique sequence. It's about 15 minutes, almost dialogue-free, as Scotty follows Madeline around her daily routine. She goes to a museum and sits in front of a portrait of her great-grandmother Carlotta. She visits Carlotta's grave, and Scotty gets pulled deeper and deeper into Madeline's web, both intrigued by what might actually be happening to her and getting more and more obsessed with the woman herself. Increasingly convinced that Madeline is actually suicidal, Scotty continues to follow her until she throws herself into San Francisco Bay. He rescues her and the two bond over the fact, the fear really, that her sanity may actually be slipping away. And Scotty's obsession turns from following her to saving her. They grow closer and closer. Scotty tries to break into her psyche and eventually they fall in love and kiss in one of those grand romantic moments that only classic Hollywood can provide. Madeline is tormented by visions of an old church and a bell tower, and Scotty takes her there with the hope of purging her of these delusions, and just when it seems like he's going to break through to her, she runs away from him and runs up the steps to the bell tower. Scotty pursues her, but because of his vertigo, he's not able to get to the top in time. He's crippled with fear, and he witnesses Madeline throw herself off the bell tower, committing suicide before he can get to the top. Or so we think. Our deep dive into Vertigo will continue in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving the goals that you want to achieve? I know a lot of times I'm so focused on doing everything out there that I need to do that I'm not worried about myself. 
mental health is a very important thing and it's critically important that you seek out the help that you need for your specific needs. BetterHelp is a service that will assess your personal needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist online. And usually you can start your communication with these therapists in under 48 hours. Now this is not a crisis line, this is not self-help, this is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise that may not be available in many local areas and BetterHelp is a resource that is available worldwide. Plus you can log in anytime and securely message your therapist 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With BetterHelp, you're gonna get timely and thoughtful responses from the counselor you're matched to, and you can schedule weekly video or phone appointments. You don't have to go to waiting rooms like you do with traditional therapy. It's all done online. BetterHelp's also committed to making sure the match that you get is right for you, which means that you can change counselors anytime you want for free, and it's more affordable than traditional therapy and financial aid is available for those who need it. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a better life today, and you can visit their website right now and read the testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com movies. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states to meet the need. And there's a special offer for viewers and listeners to this show. All my movies listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to betterhelp.com movies. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot movies. And I want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's show. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram or less of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and are only 150 calories. They're great for people that are trying to eat better, cut back on those calories, or just have an overall healthier lifestyle without sacrificing taste. What's great is that I can keep these bars in the pantry right with everything else that tastes great. I can grab one. I love all of the flavors and it is satisfying. It fills me up. It's a quick eat. It's healthier than most everything else that I would have grabbed for anyway. And it's something that can keep me going throughout the day. They also come in great flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. That one is my favorite. The combination of those two flavors with the great texture is really what I go for, but you really can't go wrong no matter which flavor you choose. No matter what your situation is, it's a great snack on the go, and they are gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO with no soy, trans fat, sugar, alcohols, or artificial colors. And if you take a liking to one of the flavors like I have, you can also sign up to get subscribed to your favorite flavor so that you never run out. And if you do that, you get 10% off of every order that you subscribe to to keep you restocked with snacks that are healthy and make you feel good. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And I have a special deal for my listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our promo code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. 
did not have anticipated that Mr. Ferguson's weakness, his uh, fear of heights, would make him powerless when he was most needed. While he's officially absolved of culpability and responsibility for Madeline's death, Scotty is still tortured by his failure to save the woman that he loves, and we see a wonderfully surreal and vibrant nightmare sequence that was designed by artist John Farron, who during his time in Europe was a contemporary of painters like Matisse and Picasso. This dream sequence's mixture of animation, very, very bright and vibrant lighting combined with very dark and surreal imagery is masterful for its time, but also far outside of the norm of what most people would have seen in a movie, even an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And this departure from the norm may be one of the reasons why Vertigo was not regarded as a classic until much later after its release. After spending some time in a sanatorium, Scotty begins retracing his steps, basically reliving the tragedy of his loss of Madeline, until he spots another young woman who looks strikingly like the woman that he loved. Now, she doesn't have her blonde hair, she doesn't have her fancy wardrobe or any of Madeline's refinement, and yet Scotty becomes obsessed with this woman, who's named Judy and also played by Kim Novak, and playing off of her sympathies for having lost somebody that he loved, Scotty sees just enough of Madeline in Judy to begin molding her like clay to bring back the woman he loves from the dead. You're looking for the suit that she wore for me. You want me to be dressed like her? Judy, I just want you to look nice. I know the kind of a suit that'll look well on you. No, I won't do it. Uh, let's be honest with ourselves. This is pretty twisted stuff. Alfred Hitchcock himself said that what Scotty is doing is basically necrophilia, trying to transform someone into a dead person that they are obsessed with. And if it was any other actor or almost any other actor in Hollywood, the contemporary audience probably would have jumped off board, and perhaps some of them did. But this is, again, the genius of casting somebody like Jimmy Stewart. You already are hardwired to like him just in general, in real life. He's a likable person. He's a war hero. He's somebody who generally played, except for a few exceptions, the hero, the person that you rooted for in the story. And so even though he's going through some pretty sick and twisted psychological obsession here, you're also rooting for him to be happy. And I think at the same time, you also have sympathy for Kim Novak as Judy. Here's a woman that is completely caught in this death spiral that Scotty has going on and yet seems to feel real compassion and perhaps love for him and you feel sympathy for her or at least you would if the movie didn't commit what I think is its biggest sin and this has always been my biggest problem with Vertigo I think it tips its hand a little too early because very shortly after Scotty meets Judy essentially sets up their first date we find out what's actually going on which is that the Judy that we're seeing is actually Madeline or at least the woman that Scotty knew as Madeline. Scotty never actually met the real Madeline, who was actually Gavin Ulster's wife. She was murdered by Ulster in a scheme to inherit all of her family's money. Scotty was essentially a patsy, a character witness to a suicide that never actually happened. Judy posed as Madeline, got Scotty to fall in love with her, they constructed an entire mystery and a reason why she would have jumped up into the bell tower, and knowing that he would not be able to save her in time, they staged Madeline's death. She was thrown off the top of the bell tower. Ulster hid Judy away and made sure that Scotty never figured it out. And the authorities and Scotty were none the wiser. Now, Scotty still doesn't know this. And I also think that Judy did develop real feelings for him when she was posing as Madeline, which is why she hangs around and allows him to do what he eventually does to her. But I've still always had the question of why the reveal was made at this particular part in the film when you could have gone much further down the line into this transformation process process and revealed it a lot closer to the end, maybe even closer to the point where Scotty himself finds out what the real truth is. 
I wonder if it was done so early so that the audience wouldn't hate Scotty, so they would not jump off board with what he does as he transforms Judy, mostly against her will, into Madeline. Maybe they wanted the audience to feel that Judy deserved what was happening to her. They didn't want people to ever be on her side. I'm not really sure why, but I've always been curious to know how this reveal would have been handled if it were made at a time when you were out of the production code era, when you had to take the morality and passing the censors out of it and what the structure of the film would have been in a less restrictive time. Even though it causes her a lot of pain, Judy allows herself to be slowly transformed back into Scotty's vision of Madeline, even allowing Scotty, much like Alfred Hitchcock himself did, to tailor her wardrobe to his exact specifications, any color as long as it's gray. Out of all of Hitchcock's films, I think you could make the case that Scotty, of all of his lead characters, in many ways represents the filmmaker the most. Obsessive about his leading women, vaguely punitive, sometimes openly punitive, and absolutely demanding that she shape herself to meet his demands and his ideals of her look and appearance and behavior. All of this culminates in one of the most striking and famous scenes in movie history. After returning to her hotel room after having her hair dyed blonde to match Madeline's, Judy finds Scotty waiting and demanding that she not only have the same hair color, but the same hairstyle as his dead lover. Hitchcock was very well aware of the psychosexual implications and outright statements in this scene as he talked to filmmaker Francois Truffaut about in their legendary interview together. When she came back, her hair made blonde. It wasn't up. This means she has stripped but won't take her knickers off. And she goes into the bathroom and he's waiting. He's waiting for the woman to undress. Judy puts her hair up and emerges from the bathroom as Madeline in a mist of green obsession. The reds and greens in this movie really pop out. And with his corpse bride now reanimated, Scotty embraces her. And we have, as close as you could get in a movie of this era, an intimation of off-screen sex. We fade to black and then fade back up as Madeline slash Judy walks out of the bathroom having just gotten dressed and putting on her earrings. They can't show anything of this sort at the time, of course, because you still had to pass the code. It would be in place for about another decade or so. But it's no question what has gone on here. It's what Scotty has been going towards the entire time. As she dresses for dinner, though, Judy makes a critical mistake. She asks Scotty to help her put on a necklace that she knew to be Madeline's family necklace. And it's a one of a item. There's no way that Judy would have anything like this. And now the jig is up. Scotty realizes that he's been had and he wants revenge. We're going awfully far. I just feel like driving. Scotty drives Judy back to the scene of the crime, the old church and the bell tower, and literally drags her up the stairs, hounding her for a confession, furious that he was a pawn in this game, that he's been through the ringer to hell and back. Made you over just like I made you over, only better. Not only the clothes and the hair, but the looks and the manner and the words. But ironically, this psychological trauma is what cures the trauma that he already had, and he's able to climb the stairs successfully without an attack of his vertigo. I made it. At the top of the tower, Judy confesses and confesses her love to Scotty, and it seems like the two of them may be able to put this behind them and move on until Judy is startled by the specter of an approaching nun. Scared that she is now going to be punished for her sins, she screams and backs off the tower, falling to her death. 
No. I heard voices. And the last shot, it is an abrupt ending, but also one of the most famous endings in Hollywood history, is of Scotty, now cured of his vertigo, staring down for the second time at the body of the woman he loved, knowing that this time she truly is dead. And I actually had a theory about this, and, you know, film theories, I guess that I could make this head canon. There's no definitive proof, kind of, one way or the other. But when you look at Scotty in this final shot, he takes on the posture and the pose of the falling man that we see earlier in Scotty's Nightmare. The hands slightly outstretched. And I've always had a personal theory that just after the fade to black, Scotty throws himself off the tower as well. That that would be the true irony of the story. That the fear of falling is finally cured and it enables him to actually throw himself to his own death. That we book in the movie one where he almost accidentally falls to his own death and then at the end of the movie where he intentionally falls to his own death. And you could even see that as his vertigo being fate's way of warning him in a weird way his nightmares being fate's way of warning him saying don't get involved don't do this thing ultimately though i think vertigo is about the unattainability of the ideal the dangers that are posed when you risk everything to gain something back that you've lost and that really is what happens both scotty and judy lose their lives in different ways trying to go back to something that was irreparably broken there would have been really no ending in which those two ended up together in a satisfactory way their past was far too complicated their sins were far too serious and they had to be paid for and the idea of paying for your sins beyond just a thematic level is something that was actually forced upon alfred hitchcock during the production of the movie he was forced to shoot an ending that's included on the blu-ray edition of the movie that i have where scotty goes to visit his friend midge who's played by barbara bel geddes and a really great supporting performance in the film and on the radio is news of Gavin Ulster being arrested in Europe for the murder of his wife, Madeline. Captain Hansen states that he anticipates no trouble in having Elster extradited once he is found. Scotty walks in after Midge listens to the news report on the radio, pours a drink, and the two share a silence together. It's not a very good ending for the film. I think that the one that it has is much, much better. But it was filmed because there was a requirement in the production code at the time, which was really not the ratings board. The ratings board would come along in the 1960s. You had to literally have your film pass muster. It had to be approved for morality, etc., based on a very labyrinthine and subjective production code. And one of those codes was that a capital sin like murder could not go unpunished. You couldn't let somebody literally get away with murder. And so if Hitchcock was at first forced to film this scene that demonstrably proves that Ulster did not get away with murder. However, Hitchcock was able to wriggle his way out of this predicament and end the movie where it did. And thus Vertigo is one of the only pre-ratings board films in which somebody commits a crime like murder and faces no on-screen punishment for it whatsoever. Scotty really is the only person left alive in the movie who faces some kind of punishment, even if it's only psychological torture for what he's gone through. And he's the one that really hasn't committed any other sin other than the sin of obsession, other than the sin of not being able to let go of the past. And again, it may be this ending and the fact that Jimmy Stewart, the hero character, loses at the end of the film that put audiences off on Vertigo a little bit because that was just not the way that people were used to movies ending in those days. 
days. It could have been a satisfactory lover's ending. It could have been a straight-up revenge ending. But the very dark and bitter tone that Vertigo ends on was not the norm for movies. Vertigo was not the norm for movies, even by Hitchcock's standards. And ultimately, this led to a much delayed process for Vertigo to be celebrated as one of Hitchcock's best. Vertigo premiered on May 9th, 1958 in San Francisco, and many histories record that the film was a flop. I think really it was more that the film was not the kind of hit that was expected of Alfred Hitchcock in that time. He had a string of box office successes. Vertigo was not one of them. But it wasn't the initially underwhelming box office that threatened Vertigo's place in the American film canon. It was Alfred Hitchcock himself. In the 1960s, Hitchcock was able to get back the rights to five of his films, Rope, Vertigo, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Trouble with Harry, and Rear Window. As soon as he got those rights back, Hitchcock immediately pulled those movies from circulation. He didn't allow them to be shown on television. He didn't allow them to be shown legally in theaters or re-released. For all intents and purposes, on a legitimate level, the movies completely disappeared. A lot of people have speculated that this was an act of fiscal responsibility on the part of the filmmaker. When he made this move in the late 1960s, he was getting older, and some people have said that he may have pulled the films from circulation in order to give his family a source of income once he died, thinking that they could sell the rights to those films back to certain studios for a large amount of money, which they did. Eventually, the rights to the films were sold back to Universal Studios for over $5 million. Regardless of his motivations, these five films pretty much disappeared for about two decades. And for filmmakers that were starting their career at this time, like Martin Scorsese, this created kind of an Alfred Hitchcock black market for people who wanted to see these movies. It became a, a lost film, so to speak. And I, I ain't talking about all the filmmakers in the 70s were trying to find copies of it. Some people had 16s, so it became a picture we were looking for. In 1983, Universal finally secured the rights, and after decades of the film not being shown legally, Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't even allow Jimmy Stewart to use a clip from Vertigo at a tribute for himself at the AFI. Now these films were re-released on television, in theaters, on home video, and something very interesting began to happen. Once Vertigo was released back into the landscape, the cultural landscape, its reputation began to grow and expand at an exponential rate. Every 10 years since 1952, the British film magazine Sight and Sound has done a survey of film critics around the world to name the 10 best movies of all time. In 1962, Citizen Kane from Orson Welles took the number one spot, and it stayed in that spot for 50 years. In 1972, Vertigo placed on that list as a runner-up. It had already been pulled from circulation, but as I said, over the years, even in the underground circuit, its reputation as one of Hitchcock's best films and one of the best films in general ever made had begun to grow. In 1982, Vertigo entered the critics' top 10 list for the first time at number 7. In 1992, it was at number 4. And in 2002, Vertigo placed second under Citizen Kane as the best movie of all time, according to critics. Then in 2012, 50 years after Citizen Kane was named the best movie of all time, Vertigo usurped Orson Welles' movie, the first movie that Bernard Herrmann had worked on, to become, according to critics, the best film ever made. And this wasn't just confined to the sight and sound poll. Vertigo has been jumping up lists all over the place. In 1998, when the American Film Institute did their first list of the 100 best American films ever made, Vertigo came in at number 61. Ten years later, when they did a second list, it jumped 52 spots to number 9. In just one decade, it had moved from the 60s into the top 10. Vertigo is one of the most prominent examples, maybe the most prominent example, of the fact that 
Film history is not written by the opening weekend or in a month or a year or even a decade, nor is it determined solely by awards. Vertigo's music and direction, its acting, its cinematography, none of that was nominated for any Academy Awards. It wasn't a box office hit, nor was it particularly loved by critics at the time. Many of them found the movie underwhelming, and yet, over time, the film won out. The cinematic canon is always changing, and film is like a living, breathing organism capable of radical change over decades. We've seen the story of Vertigo with so many other films, including Blade Runner and It's a Wonderful Life and The Shawshank Redemption, movies that weren't really given a whole lot of recognition at their time, but over time became recognized as pioneering pieces of cinema. Yesterday's flop can be tomorrow's masterpiece as movies are rediscovered, reevaluated, and canonized. And so it is with Vertigo, a movie that was underwhelming when it came out, a movie that was lost for nearly two decades that was forgotten by many, and most definitely a film that was misunderstood in its time, emerged from the green fog of film history to become the most critically acclaimed film in many circles of all time. As always, I like to break down the special features in the Blu-rays that I feature on the show. The version of Vertigo that I have is part of a collection of Alfred Hitchcock films, but it still has a really good selection of special features. The best and my favorite amongst them is a 30-minute documentary called Obsessed with Vertigo that talks about the making of the movie, but also goes into the restoration of the film. We covered this when we talked about The Godfather, but The Godfather was restored at a time when you could do it through digital intermediate, through a computer. If you wanted to restore a film, get the color correction right you went in digitally and were able to do it that way vertigo was restored in the mid 90s before any of that was a possibility as a matter of fact i found an article that was written at the time where they expressly said that not one frame of the vertigo restoration was done digitally because at the time the technology just wasn't there and it was far too expensive to restore a movie with computers instead what they did with vertigo was went back and found the best prints that they could they found the original negative which was not in very good shape and they also found what are called the separation masters we mentioned this in the godfather which is that there was a process when they were printing a film of breaking it down into red, green, and blue elements. And then those masters would be combined to make the prints that would go out for the final film. So they had a negative of the film that was not in great shape. They had some of these separation masters of the red, green, and blue elements, but those were also not in great shape. Sometimes they had to go through and line the frames of those up individually. Three separate pieces of film individually lined up one on top of the other. They had to restore some of it from the best prints that they could find. It's a really fascinating look at the art of film restoration in a time before digital technology when you had to physically restore every single frame as best you could to go back to the original. They also remixed the sound. They found Bernard Herrmann's original recordings of the score. It's a great look at the old way of restoring film and just how dedicated the craftsmen and the artisans were that did this work and continue to do this work. There are also some great featurettes on four of Hitchcock's most important collaborators. We talked about two of them in the show. One of them is Saul Bass, who made the opening titles to Vertigo and other Hitchcock films. The other is composer Bernard Herrmann, who did some of Hitchcock's most famous scores. And then we also get a look at Edith Head, who designed the wardrobe, not just for Alfred Hitchcock's films, but for hundreds of other films. One of the most acclaimed figures in the history of the cinematic art form. Not only did she do hundreds of films as a department head. She was spearheading costume designing as a profession 
as an art form. You also get a look at Alfred Hitchcock's relationship with his wife, Alma, who was his most trusted advisor. From the minute he had an idea, he would talk to her because she was a writer and see if she thought it would make a movie. And if she said yes, then he'd go ahead. The disc also includes a 14-minute snippet of Hitchcock's conversation with Francois Truffaut that specifically covers Vertigo. There's also the alternate ending that we discussed earlier, as well as the original theatrical trailer for the film, and an audio commentary from filmmaker William Friedkin. It wasn't maybe the most insightful commentary, but if you want to see the film again, but with the scattered thoughts of one of the greatest filmmakers of the later era of film, then that is also included on this disc. And that wraps up my look at Vertigo. Thank you so much for watching the show. We're going to wrap up this month of celebrating movies that came out in May with a look at another one of the biggest blockbusters of all time. I'm excited to talk about that with you. As always, thank you so much for watching us. If you're watching us here on YouTube or if you're listening to us, if you are an audio listener, don't forget to check out the video version of the show on my channel, youtube.com slash Movies, as well as all the great Schmodown stuff on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. And if you're watching us on YouTube, I would love it if you would become an audio subscriber. We'll be back with a big movie to close out May next week, but until then, it's time to go back on the shelf. Thanks for watching. Mm-hmm.